Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. In the case of a haunting, a severe traumatic incident alters the composition of everything around it to such a degree that reality is drastically changed. This program features the work of 2018 writer Brian Edenfield. Curator Damon Arundel spoke with him in the studio. Brian, would you describe your project to our audience? Yes. It is 99 uh, different opening paragraphs to different books by a variety of different authors, but they are all fictional. Um, they exist within uh, sort of a... Uh, they're all connected in one way or another to uh, an imaginary city called Silver Cliffs. It's a city I invented that exists along the Arizona-California border somewhere, mysteriously. And uh, the opening paragraphs sort of end up creating a literary history of this fictional community that hopefully would also reflect, in part, the history of America, because it kind of goes through time mm -hmm. um, over a fairly long period of time, a couple hundred years probably. Mm -hmm. um, the work also includes biographies of the various authors, and I would like there to be sort of appendices, like an index, because as the whole thing is going and I'm inventing this world, there ends up being a lot of little side stories or uh, uh, strange little artifacts that would be fun to explain. Hmm. I love the idea of the appendices. Um, how did this idea come to you? How did this, this series of opening paragraphs, 99 opening paragraphs to different voices, how did that come about? Yeah, there's a few sort of things that happened that, that gave birth, I guess, to it. Um, I remember, I distinctly remember, I worked at a used bookstore, and I just came upon one of those sort of little, um, like, stocking stuffer type books that was, like, opening, famous opening lines mm. from famous novels. Mm -hmm. um, and I really liked reading it. Like, I felt like it read as its own thing. Like, it created its own story, almost. And I realized that I had a bunch of unfinished work or, or weird fragments or just writing that I didn't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And I could use that to, to produce this sort of thing. Um, but as I was doing that, I realized it'd be way more fun to do the whole first paragraph, mm. which in terms of the stuff that I was sort of taking from wasn't always the first paragraph because sometimes you have a few bad starts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's, you know, a lot of editing involved once I decide on something. But... I put it together as a zine. Mm -hmm. It was just 22 at that point. There were 22 opening paragraphs. And I was an intern at Zap, the Zine Archive and Publishing Project. Mm -hmm. um, I had to do sort of a final project. And for my final project, I, I made this zine. And then I put on a show where I, I sort of presented the history of this fictional city that I kind of made up partially on the fly <laughs> to fit all this together. Um, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that hard because, like, my writing, I think, tends towards. I like I I don't like making pop culture references, or mm. I don't like 
uh, like some authors totally do it well, and mm-hmm. and and but I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel weird. I feel like I need to make up every single thing. Uh. So it was already kind of in my writing. I had like Silver Cliffs had there was like an offhand mention of it in something I wrote, and I had like fairly detailed descriptions of like cities and things that I wrote, and I just sort of used that to it sort of emerged pretty naturally from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so speaking to all of these interlocking, interweaving stories, how do you create an arc amongst that many different voices? I guess, for example, there is a sort of mini version of this published in uh, the Meekling Review not very long ago, mm-hmm. and it was just 13, 13 opening paragraphs and then the biographies of all the authors and also like a brief introduction to sort of set up what Silver Cliffs is mm-hmm. because there's lots of references in the paragraphs. It kind of helps to have that context. And so what you have is a pretty simple format where you have the paragraph, the author, the title, the publisher, the year, um, but little things just sort of start to connect together, like the name of the publishers, the last name of the character, or one of the names mentioned in another paragraph. So I think a story starts to weave through the various parts, not always in obvious ways. Like the opening paragraphs themselves don't always connect together, but maybe uh, one is published by the same person who you know, did this other thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the biographies tend to be a little more straightforwardly narrative. Mm -hmm. So they can start to connect the pieces. I think there's something really cool that there is a magic to the arc of these stories kind of weaving together without you necessarily intentionally trying to make it happen, that it kind of organically begins to happen um, at least one arc. It actually felt like there were there were numerous arcs kind of weaving the stories together. So within these, these collections um, of paragraphs, opening paragraphs, how much more is written? Uh, do you just create that opening paragraph and that's it? Or do you have like a series of paragraphs and you try and figure out which one for each character? Because I can tell that you've created a backstory for these characters, but for the opening paragraph specifically for each one, is there more that you've already written? Yeah, uh, sometimes. Sometimes frustratingly so because I kind of want to put that in there too, but but I restrain myself. Um, uh, though that could be also what the appendices for, like, mm-hmm. here's the whole first chapter. Mm. But I almost, I don't know, that, that might, maybe that'll be cheating. I don't know. <laughs> um, but some of them are, I don't have anything else but the opening paragraphs. And those those tend to be the ones that were written more for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I find myself writing for this book without even knowing it because mm. I'll, I, I mean, I have like, 100 page unfinished novels that I just sort of gave up on and I and there's an opening paragraph there uh, and also a whole story that I could then you know reference mm-hmm. do you ever have the characters the idea for a character coming first and then figuring out what the paragraph is going to be or is it you've just the the paragraph just comes and then you have to create and decide who the character is yeah it's definitely both I, it was more of the paragraph coming first when I started, mm-hmm. um, but now and and within the last the last 
couple years it's more, I'm finding gaps. I'm finding there are voices that haven't spoken. Hmm. Um, and I feel like I need to fill those gaps. Mm-hmm. So it's it's becoming more uh, creating the characters. And like with that last one I read, um, the character that I first came up with was the mayor, Cesar Herrera. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of his his story evolved. The his his wife that was is the author of the piece, and after he dies, she writes that, and and so she sort of became kind of took center stage, uh, in the at least in that part. So yeah, it, it evolves more from for me like writing this timeline, sort of like figuring how all this fits into this fictional and and also into real American history, and that's that's something I'm sort of working on now. How do you think your work either breaks the mold or challenges the status quo? Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, like, what is the status quo anymore? It's just like a chaotic swirl of competing status quos. Um, and maybe maybe that's what I'm playing with. Um, you know, like, I wrote a series of poems inspired by utopian ideals or trying to envision instead of I feel like most utopian literature tends to be sort of like a this is this is utopian society here's how it looks mm-hmm. blah 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 um, it's more like what if people lived in a utopian society and what kind of poetry would it produce mm. and I think I I wanted to write it because there's a lot of angry writing right now mm-hmm. um, I mean a, a lot of us poets and writers where we're pissed and that is coming across in the writing but I, I I want there to still be beauty I feel like that could be a better way to mm-hmm. fight mm-hmm. Um, and to imagine a better world I think we we are all getting very good at at knowing what's wrong mm-hmm. and I was worried that I was getting too negative and mm-hmm. critical rather than imagining Beautiful, fanciful, even they don't doesn't matter if they're unrealistic. Um, you can just dream it up, and it can inspire people. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I want to do that. I think I I do that in this book too. I mean, there's there's a strong tendency towards people who are trying to make the world a better place. Now, we'll hear a selection from Brian's live reading. I'm going to tell a ghost story, so hopefully the noise you make is screaming. (laughs) Uh, It's not really that kind of ghost story, but maybe. Um, This is a a brief and condensed history of the hauntings at the Parlor Hotel, um, because there's no way I could cover it all right now. It's 1898. In the great mansion on Blossom Street, built by the money of Adam and Sienna Parlor, their son, William, madly in love with his own sister, Maggie, buried his brother Fraser's head under a pillow while he slept in his room on the top story of the mansion. Fraser suffocated and died. Most historians believe that William did this out of jealousy. Maggie and Fraser were twins and reportedly very close. William then trapped Maggie in her room 
just down the hallway and drove her mad, torturing her until she could no longer speak. I will not describe the tortures. Their mother, Sienna, committed suicide the next day when she learned of Fraser's death, Maggie's madness, and William's savagery. It should be noted that Sienna had recently lost her mother and her sister, who died mysteriously a few months prior. She was thus already in quite a fragile state. Her husband at this time uh, was likely at a nearby brothel. <laughs> Adam Parler, the patriarch, husband, father, philanderer, businessman, finally arrived home and confronted William. That confrontation ended when he shot his own son with a Winchester rifle. After Adam went up to see his daughter, Maggie, to console her, she paced around her room and did not seem to listen to him when he raised his voice in frustration and confusion because he wasn't there, he didn't know what was going on. She calmly went over to him with a letter opener and shoved it in his neck. He didn't die immediately. She watched him bleed to death in her room, then took his rifle, the same that killed her brother, and shot herself in the face. Adam's mother, very old, came up and found the bodies. She died of shock. <laughs> Here begins the bloody history of the Parlor Hotel. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. The mansion is eventually purchased and renovated and turned into the hotel. So now it's 1920. The opera singer Carlotta Brigade checks into what is now the Parlor Hotel, a classy destination for the wealthy and famous. Carlotta had recently fled from her own personal utopia. She was married to the rich Dr. Marvin Smoke, and he, stunned and mesmerized by her sonorous, trembling voice, built her an opera house secluded somewhere in the Amazon jungle, which is where you do that sort of thing. Uh, modeled after Pittsburgh's famed Oyster Opera House, this palace to song lifted and held her voice, powerful and deep, and sent it to every corner of the building. When she sang, the walls sang, the columns sang, the curtains sang. The stained glass windows adorned with the glowing visage of Christ on the cross shook with her vibrato. The crimson carpet throbbed and swelled a lake of boiling blood when she hit her high notes. Her voice echoed through that opera house for hours after she was gone, traveling out of the theater and into the hallways, down the golden corridors, rubbing against the silver statues of sea creatures, swimming through the blue-painted swirls of the shimmering aquatic lobby. An entire town was built to support Carlotta's opera house. Dr. Smoke employed the finest chefs to cook for his wife and for the guests that came to listen to her sing. He had a small grocer in the town, a post office, an airport, salon, saloons, and a bathhouse, all to support the workers that had to live in this oasis of civilization, all to support his brilliant songbird, Carlotta, and the voice that could, according to him, split open the universe in ecstasy. But was it her voice ripping open the universe, or was it the building itself? Mm. Pittsburgh's Oyster Opera House, the model for Carlotta's, may have been acoustically superior to any of the day, but it was also, some would say, cursed. It came to its own violent end in 1921 when it was burned to the ground by an angry mob. This was only the climax to a long history of calamity, a history we cannot get into at the moment, but I believe it's fair to say this. The Oyster Opera House was certainly haunted, haunted from its very inception. The opera house was haunted because architect Charles Mason built it to be haunted. <laughs> Mason hid his interest in the occult for most of his clients, uh, but after his self-inflicted and ritualistic death, authorities discovered his writings. Historian Effa Mabe writes of him, 
We believe that this experimental architect perfected a kind of nano design without the aid of computers or the fine-tuned machines we have at our disposal today. We propose that this nanotexture interacts with the non-architectural environment on a molecular or even atomic level, restructuring the surroundings through causal emergence, eventually igniting sentience. Likely, Mason discovered the appropriate nanostructures through meticulous trial and error, though many will suggest, and Mason would claim, that an allegiance to black magic or demons gave him the apocryphal knowledge. So, can demons be built? The demons that caused, yeah. The demons that caused a crowd of 300 to go mad and burn down the Oyster Opera House, can these ghosts be built into the plaster, into the mortar and bricks and balconies? If Charles Mason built a temple to the devil disguised as a place of high culture, did our rich, obsessed Dr. Smoke do the same by accident? Carlotta said she heard voices that were not hers. Her husband only laughed. The acoustics, my dear, they're that good. She said that deep whispers followed her everywhere in the opera house, whispers that were not sounds, but shuddering vibrations that traveled through the body that wormed through the spine. She said that when she sang, the screams of dying angels drowned out her own voice. When she spoke, devils whispered dark words into her ears. He told her to get some rest and laughed. Then she stopped talking. She stopped singing. She refused to make a sound. He pleaded with her, yelled at her, beat her. She ran. A sympathetic pilot flew her back to the United States. She ran off to the sweltering dead armpit of the country. She ran off to Silver Cliffs and checked in to the parlor hotel and did not say a word. She stayed there for five months before he found her. When he arrived, he worked at a deal with the cash-strapped owner of the hotel and they became business partners. Then he locked her in her room. She didn't cry when he screamed and spit in her face. She didn't make a noise when he slapped her. He took over the top story of the hotel. Dr. Smoke locked Carlotta up there and began remodeling. He added onto it, and the building grew. He built his own castle on top of the parlor's castle. He designed it himself. He had learned a lot studying Charles Mason's work. Thus, the five-story building became an eight-story one. Smoke designed this new castle so that whatever room he was in, he would be able to hear the tiniest sigh that came from Carlotta's mouth. And so he wandered through the long arched hallways, listening to the curtains rustle in the north wing, the bird feet scamper over the roof above, the mouse whimper through the fifth floor hallway, and Carlotta breathing in her bed, the satin sheet slipping onto the floor, the floor creaking slightly under her feet. But she did not speak. She didn't even sigh. And he lay in his room at night, listening to doors open and close as servants went to and fro. And the sound was so distinct, so close, that it was as if he lay in the center of a room of flapping shutters swinging open and slamming shut all around him. He ate dinner in the great dining room that overlooked bustling Blossom Street and listened to the dripping water from a faucet two stories up. He heard the servants quietly shuffle through the kitchen, the pantry, the linen closet, because they knew Master Smoke was always listening, and they could not speak a word. If they did, their ugly, plebeian voices might cover up the sound of a goddess batting her eyelashes. But Carlotta barely blinked, and she did not speak. And when Smoke heard screams, they were not hers. When he heard cries, they came from some alien voice. When trembling, unplaceable sounds begged him to stop, 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 it wasn't her. But she heard them too, and while Smoke could leave, wander over to the saloon and to calm his nerves, she was trapped in this chamber of swinging shutters, 
surrounded by a cascade of dripping faucets, leaking pipes, scampering rodents, suffocated by servants, the servants' hushed movements, the flies buzzing by the windows. She was engulfed in an avalanche of white noise. And then the screams, the voices. She left the building, finally, by throwing a chair through the only unbarred window she could find in an unused room on the eighth floor. She jumped out the window and splattered onto the cobblestone of Blossom Street. Smoke left the parlor hotel penniless, heartbroken, and wandered the desert town, another nobody in a land of nothing. His body was found in the desert, bloated and bleached, his intestine hanging from the thorny arms of an acatillo cactus, his eyes eaten by vultures. I'm gonna fast forward a lot. Uh, there, there was a, a filmmaker who went to this hotel in around the 1926 to try to film the spirits, and he became very obsessed and did a bunch of writing and came up with a scientific theory of the supernatural. Um, this is an excerpt from a short summary of the theory of supernatural phenomenon. And then and I'll end with that. So this is Titus Loom is his name, so he wrote this. Uh, in the case of a haunting, a severe traumatic incident alters the composition of everything around it to such a degree that reality is drastically changed. The extreme volatile emotions surrounding the tragic torture of a young woman, the murder of a number of people in the same building, the same room, will not only affect the bodies that were maimed, shot, mutilated, destroyed, it will affect the very composition of everything around the tragedy. So violently altered, they may constantly realigned, trapped as they are in tortured limbo. It is my belief that when we die, we are dead, and we have no souls to lift up to heaven. But our consciousness and our material being consist of imperceptible elements that go on throughout the universe. And in these instances of hauntings, it is not simply a minuscule realignment that creates a vague outline of a Londoner from 1312, for example, but the realignment of an entire tortured consciousness, a consciousness that has now embedded itself in an entire place, in the walls, in the breathed air, and if one steps into that environment, his being is altered as well, and he will carry with him these small elements of horror that live in these haunted castles, that live to recreate the ghastly events of the past again and again, bringing new victims into the fold so that they may move on, and this terror can colonize the whole of the earth until eventually we live on a haunted, doomed globe. <laughs> the spirits colonize and we can never escape the evils of the past, so thoroughly do they alter our surroundings. It is my belief that there is no God, no angels, no devils, no miracles, and no monsters, and that all supposed supernatural occurrences can be explained by means I have shown above. Our actions, our thoughts, our nightmares, alter the composition of reality in such a way that the past and our own fevered, fraught imaginings manifest themselves to us and to others. We are the makers of our own hell. Furthermore, concerning the parlor hotel, it is my belief that the architecture of the building, for reasons I have yet to understand, accentuated the terror that lived in that building, trapping these ghosts more thoroughly than most places. Another theory is that it may be possible to construct a place, as construction is the purposeful and human means of composing the world around us, this looming world, and thus, construction is the taking control through human means of the very building blocks of existence, it may be possible to manufacture a reality that is intrinsically demonic. At this time, I cannot say. The Parlor Hotel was demolished in 2009. Thank you.
Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2018 curator of this program is Damon Arundel. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Ayesha Ubiatilaka, Daniel Gunther, and Joel Maddox. Narrator is Alyssa Keen, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Amy Rubin and Don Clement, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>